Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good evening, children of the night. I'm Stephen Kilpatrick, and I will be your host for the evening. Come on into the cabin. Take a seat. Get comfortable. Join us. We have just concluded a month of asking you for money, underlined with the dire possibility that we may have to shudder tales to terrify for a while. As of this moment that I hit record on this metal box, I have to report I don't have an update. If we have some news, it will come sooner than would make sense to wait until we record another episode. It will be posted to Facebook. So, stay tuned for that, and please, share in my optimism. Although, just because we've stopped asking for money, doesn't mean we don't need any more of it. So, if you want to do something more than be optimistic, the PayPal link on TalesToTerrify.com. Secondly, we are looking to the future and are still planning on being around indefinitely. So, remember, those Stoker Award nominees that we promised will be airing, I'm proud to report that we have a single narration pending and the rest are all in, with one exception that we won't be airing because of contractual obligations. Also, remember how I had mentioned that we would be airing a string of episodes to commemorate our 200th episode with classic pieces of literature? Well, we asked on Facebook what stories those should be, received a great response, and all of the ones that have passed out of copyright, we've accepted. 
There were a couple that are still in copyright, and we're not confident that we can get permission from the estates of some of the authors in time for the episode. That's the good news. The bad is we're still a little skinny on the side of narrators. We could use more. If you've got a decent voice, a decent microphone, and an altruistic spirit, email a 30 to 60 second audition clip to us and we'll put you to work if we like what we hear. If I have to narrate all of the Poe by myself, I will, but I prefer not to have too many episodes that are all Stephen Kilpatrick. I hope you understand. What do we have for you tonight, though? We'll have a story from C.S. Fuquay. Then we will be hearing from Sylvia Schultz. It'll be a bit of a longer episode, so settle in. Chris began his writing career in college in the late 1970s by freelancing for trade journals. He later worked as a newspaper reporter and magazine staff writer before becoming a full-time freelance writer and editor in the mid-1980s. His work has appeared in hundreds of small and large press publications as diverse as Bullspec, Main Street Rag, Slipstream, Pearl, Bog, Chiron Review, The Year's Best Horror Stories, Cemetery Dance, Christian Science Monitor, Honolulu Magazine, Naval History, and The Writer, among many others. His published books include Native American Flutecraft, Ancient to Modern, The Native American Flute, Myth, History, Craft, Trust Walk, and Rise Up Short Fiction Collections, The Swing, Poems of Fatherhood, Big Daddy's Gadgets, Muscle Shoals, The Hit Capital's Heyday, and Beyond, Cancer, White Trash, and Southern Collected Poems, Volume 1, and Notes to My Becca, among others. He has recently produced the Wind Poems series of CDs featuring Native American flute meditations. Other musical CDs are in pre-production. Chris is a University of West Florida graduate. He's worked as a newspaper reporter, magazine editor, book editor, English tutor, substitute teacher, janitor, respiratory therapy technician, gas station attendant, when such things existed, sales clerk, musician in a Mexican restaurant, and writing instructor. He continues to freelance full-time, concentrating on fiction while pursuing tangents into non-fiction and poetry. His hobbies include playing guitar and other instruments, and crafting Native American flutes. He lives with his family in New Mexico. And now, C.S. Fuquay's Rise Up. Wind shouted Bobby's name as a guitar case in the back seat, bounced against the ceiling, then back down. Time suspended. Undergrowth tore at the car and a tree slammed into the passenger side. The airbags exploded. Sometime later, he had no idea how long, Bobby lifted his head off the steering wheel, groggy, confused, his right eye crusted shut. The deflated airbag slid slowly down the wheel. He raised a trembling heavy hand and touched above his eye, damp and sticky. His head lulled back against the headrest as he tried to get his bearings. He swallowed hard and forced the crust to give way, his eye to open. His head throbbed, but he remembered the deer. He'd yanked the wheel and everything slowed, the car shooting into the woods, limbs and brush slapping the sides, Wynne shouting his name. Wynne. He groaned and reached for her in the dashed light's emerald glow, his fingers found her hair, then her shoulders, and he grasped and pulled her as close as he could, her head flopping hard against him. When? He tried to brace her up, but he didn't have the strength, and her body slumped to the side. 
He felt her neck for a pulse that wasn't there. Bobby pushed open the door and struggled into the darkness, nearly fainting as he stumbled through the brush to the passenger side to find it curved inward against a massive oak. He clambered back around, falling twice in the thick growth. He crouched into the driver's seat, reaching over to Wynne to shift her body so he could grip her under the arms to pull her out through the driver's side. He braced, pulled, and collapsed. Darkness pressed in for several terrifying seconds before he regained full awareness. He held Wynne as close as possible, mumbling, Don't die. Not now. Bobby pressed his face into her hair, the essence of Wynne's muted fragrance engulfing him, the same as it had the first day he'd met her at Sharps and Flats, the dilapidated music shop near the docks. She was new there, a point of pride for the old woman who ran the place, a strangely fascinating coot, rumored to talk to her instruments. What was it the old woman had told him that day? Music's conduit, son. Some even believe it has power over life and death. Bobby checked again for a pulse. Nothing. With his strength gone, he prayed the old woman hadn't played him for a fool. Breathlessly, he began to sing. Bobby spotted sharps and flats the first time the band played the derelict downtown performance center, two blocks away. The band's performance was the center's last before being raised with neighboring bars and strip joints in the city's effort to revitalize the area with upscale shops, nightclubs, and restaurants. The plan's one exception had been the old music shop. Despite the building's tired appearance, with boxes stacked before the small front window, each filled with sheet music dating back ten decades or more, the window always sporting the same beat-up Gibson rumored to have been played by Robert Johnson. Despite all of that, or perhaps because of it, city bigwigs left the shop alone. It possessed a certain quaintness politicians hoped would attract other offbeat businesses to create a genuine bohemian section that could prove a boon to city coffers. Since then, Bobby had become a regular, trying out instruments he could never hope to own. Two years after the Performance Center's demolition, and the band began playing the new upscale clubs downtown, Bobby met Wynn about a week after she started with Sharps and Flats. He'd needed a set of strings, but when he spotted her, he decided to try out a few of the mandolins as an excuse to stay longer. The old lady who owned the place had perched herself as usual in a chair on the sidewalk, next to the old boxes of sheet music. No matter how much of that music vanished, the boxes never emptied. She grinned as he approached, bracing herself with hands on her knees, dress dipping between her legs as she sat forward, with one eye squinting up at him. "'Heard y'all playing last night,' she said as Bobby came up. He shrugged. "'Nice club, but I miss the old joints.' "'They'll be back,' she snorted. "'People like what they like, and it all goes in cycles.' "'So what do you think?' Bobby asked. The woman nodded appreciatively and leaned more toward him, a probing seriousness playing in her eyes. Just keep your head when the time comes. Odd thing to say, Bobby thought, and he glanced away. The newspaper reviewer sure did like you, she said. Bobby laughed. I saw that. The band, he quoted in an affected voice of superiority. Approaches the performance and history of bluegrass music. 
with creative sensitivity, not evident since the New Grass revival. He chuckled again. <laughs> I especially liked how he said we blend genres into something ancient, spiritual, and new. How can it be ancient and new at the same time, beats me, but at least he liked us. And that's what counts, the old lady said. She straightened somewhat, her gaze going to something in the distance. Where I come from, music's got a lot of power. Folks, well, well, they don't talk about it much, but some folks possess something special that sets them above the others. Like you. Bobby shook his head. Well, we're just lucky. I ain't talking about the band, and I ain't talking about just musical ability, she said. The lines on her face deepened as her gaze came back to him. Power's power, son. I come from the Appalachians. Back home, folks recognize what's special. We've used it ever since our ancestors came from Scotland and Ireland and married in with it in Sloggy. Back home, folks recognize what's special. We've used it ever since our ancestors came from Scotland and Ireland and married in with the Chalogy Indians. Bobby smiled, but the old woman fixed him with her glare. Don't pretend, boy. You felt what I'm talking about. Music can lift up, drag down, inspire, destroy. She swept her hand around. Spirit runs through everything. You learn to channel that spirit, you can do wonders. Music's a conduit, son. Some say it's even got power over life and death. Bobby smiled uncomfortably. The old woman gave a mildly admonishing shake of her head. You'll understand soon enough. Her eyes lingered on him for a moment longer. Then she grinned, and the mood lightened. She nodded toward the door. You ain't here for an old woman's talk. I have a new helper inside. She can help you. She sat heavily back, fanning herself in the growing humidity and heat with the bottom of her long, billowy blouse. Well, then. Bobby took a step up, but misconnected on the stair's edge and stumbled in setting the old woman to chuckling as his face flushed embarrassment. Beneath the damp, musty pungency of age, Bobby detected the subtle aroma of something comforting and eternal, perhaps the odor of wood instruments, the smell of perfection. Mandolins, banjos, and guitars lined the walls, interspersed with more exotic instruments such as ouds, chemisons, sighs, and even a lyre guitar. A couple of Taylors, Martins, Gibsons, and Gallaghers were there, but other instruments, as impeccably crafted, were better than the best of the big names, bore no brand name at all. Bobby started toward the back, circling around the huge middle rack that crowded most of the narrow room's space. A young woman straightened behind a small counter between him and the back wall that bore the most immaculate stringed instruments he'd ever seen. Their wood looked almost alive, he knew no other way to describe it, and the wall seemed to resonate just out of hearing range. The young woman placed her hands on top of the case, her left hand clutching a dust cloth. May I help you? She was no beauty queen, but dimples punctuated a compassionate smile while downy chestnut hair framed dark, mysterious eyes that beckoned Bobby into a place where he knew he'd lose himself. She stood about as tall as Bobby, a sturdy frame that exuded a certain calm strength. He'd wanted strings, but now he muttered something about looking for a new mandolin. In a band? Pensacola, he said, and he 
noted the spark of recognition in her eyes. I thought you looked familiar. I saw you a few months back, she said. You guys are good. We do okay, I guess. You play an instrument? He asked, but before she could answer, other questions tumbled out even to his surprise. You sing? What's your name? Perform? Want to have dinner sometime? He stopped suddenly, his face warming as she grinned. Name's Wynn, and yes, she said. Bobby's brow narrowed. Yes, to the first, third, and last questions, Wynn chuckled. I sing and sort of play guitar, but mostly sing. I haven't been in a band yet, and I'd love to have dinner. Two weeks later, Wynn Seaver assumed management of Bobby's band and started singing backup. The following week, she worked her last day at Sharps and Flats and moved in with Bobby. Bobby stopped in at Sharps and Flats on Wynn's last day, and the old woman waddled back to the counter where he was looking over the instruments on the wall. "'Beautiful, ain't they?' she said. Bobby nodded. "'What brand?' Pride softened the age lines that wrinkled the woman's face. Brand don't matter. She selected the same teardrop mandolin that he'd played on Wynn's first day. The headstock had a small blemish, perhaps a burn from some careless player's cigarette pinched between the wood and strings. But Bobby was struck by the lightness and feel of the wood. He strummed a few times and then began to pick his own Mandistopheles notes ringing with such sustain and clarity that he held his breath. Abruptly, he stopped and handed the instrument back to the old woman, shaking his head. I can't afford this. I'd best stop. He glanced around, catching a glimpse from Wynn, who was helping another customer with a guitar. The old lady placed the mandolin carefully back on its hanger. Ain't it funny, she said, huffing slightly from the effort as she turned back to him. She braced herself on the counter. Happy tunes like that one you just played can lift people out of the deepest holes, and others can send them crashing to the bottom. She leaned toward him, nodding slightly. Like I told you, music has power. The right words, melody, sincerity. She nodded again and waddled off to the other end of the counter. Let me know if you want to see another one. Bobby sensed Wynne's closeness before her gentle hand touched his shoulder. Wynne's eyes, deep and resonant, flashed between Bobby and the old woman. Did she sell it to you? It's a fine mandolin, he admitted, but cash is definitely a problem. He stepped away from the counter, calling thanks to the old woman. He kissed Wynne on the cheek. I'll pick you up later, he said and started out, a vague uneasiness gnawing. Wynn and Bobby endured good-natured jibing from the other band members as their dependence on and attraction to one another grew, cultivating a deep, enduring understanding and ability to anticipate and act without words. Under Wynn's management, the band's reputation grew as one of the hardest-working groups on the circuit, delivering a unique sound bound for national recognition. Even Bobby began to leave the band would break out. By the time Pensacola played Baton Rouge, a loyal fan base had begun promoting them as much as they promoted themselves. Wynn had invited a Sugar Hill Records producer to attend, and Bobby hoped the crowd's boisterous cheering would help secure a record deal. Bobby lost himself in the music that night, and he began to feel the power the Sharps and Flats woman had talked about. 
The final set ended after the crowd called the band back for two encores. Nearly 200 of the band's self-produced CDs sold that night. Not bad for a bar venue, where music usually competed with patrons shouting their intentions to their dates. As applause died and the crowd turned to canned music and negotiations for evening company, the band's members gathered expectantly around Wynn. She shrugged. He couldn't make it. So why are you smiling? Kyle, the guitarist, asked, his voice thick with disappointment. He called, Wynn said, tapping her cell phone with her forefinger. He's flying in early tomorrow to meet with us, which means we have to load up and drive back tonight. Kyle groaned. Long drive. For a record contract, it's worth a little lost sleep, Wynn said. Bobby and I can drive back tonight. We should get home around two or three in the morning, and we can meet with him first thing tomorrow to go over business aspects. And if you guys would rather drive back in the morning, we can play for him tomorrow night. Sounds good to me, Kyle said. It'll take a couple hours to pack anyway. Frank and Richard agreed, and they told Wynn and Bobby to head out, that they'd take care of the equipment. City lights dimmed behind them as Bobby eased down on the gas once on the interstate shortly after ten. Wynne placed her can of root beer in the cup holder next to the gear shift between the seats and slipped off the seat belt. She drew her feet into the seat, curled her legs under her, and nuzzled close to Bobby. He put his arm around her and didn't take it away until shortly after 1 a.m. when he directed the car down the exit toward town and home. Still well north of the city, a mesmerizing tangle of limbs and leaves flashed past in the edge of the headlight's beam. His eyes began to close. He nodded, startling himself, and jerked the wheel slightly. He drew a deep breath and shook his head violently to fight the drowsiness. Wind sighed and cuddled against the door, head resting on the glass. Bobby shifted in the seat, and his knee knocked the open drink. He grabbed for the can as it fell, his foot going down hard on the pedal, as a deer bounded into the road. Bobby yanked the wheel and hit the brakes. The car careened and the tires hit the soft shoulder fishtailing into the woods and slamming sideways into a tree. Don't die, Bobby whispered as he checked Wynn's neck for a pulse. He rummaged frantically through the car and located the cell phone in the floorboard, crushed. He struggled again to get her out but fell back as blackness rushed in, threatening unconsciousness. His throat swelled with emotion. He buried his face in her hair as the Sharps and Flats woman began to murmur softly in his memory. Voices argued in his mind, one deriding the notion, the other insisting he had nothing to lose. But what did it matter if it didn't work? He'd lost nothing more. But if it did work... Softly at first, words emerged in a shaky tenor. Rise up! His voice quavered. Rise up, my lovely darling. The powers must hear this cannot be. With each word, his voice and the tune gained strength, settling into a compelling pattern and positive melody. Rise up, rise up, my lovely darling. Give her back, restore her soul to me. 
This life is short even when it's long I cannot accept this wrong Deals I'll make and spells I'll chant To bring her soul back home Love is the music, the music in our hearts Rise up my darling soul Love is the key, the key in our hearts Hear me powers, let her go Let her go Rise up, rise up my lovely darling The powers must hear this cannot be Rise up, rise up my lovely darling Give her back, restore her soul to me His voice faded in the snap and pop of metal cooling and the chant of forest insects. He wept into her hair, grasping at her, trying to draw her even closer, only to stop in an abrupt gasp. Wind shivered and moaned softly. Bobby? She raised her hand, eyes cloudy. It's okay, he whispered. Bobby's chest pounded. We had an accident. The old woman. He shook his head in denial of the thought. I missed the pulse, that's all. His fingers traced Wind's cheek, bruised and pallid in the dim light, and for the first time he noticed blood on his hand from a long, shallow cut that ran from elbow to wrist. We need to get to a hospital. No. She shook her head slowly and sighed hoarsely. Home. When? Let's go home. Bobby turned the ignition key, and the engine kicked over once, twice, caught. He shifted into reverse, and the metal on the passenger's side protested as it pulled away from the tree. The car made it home, and he parked in the backyard where it would be out of sight in question, at least for now. Bobby's head throbbed as he forced Wynn's door to open and helped her out. He slammed it shut as Wynn leaned against him for support he could barely give. They walked stiffly, as though each step had to be planned. Inside the house, he helped her remove her jeans and blouse, streaked with blood from a cut on her neck that had crusted over. Her skin shone milky in the cold bathroom light, and faint bruises dotted her arms and back. But what worried Bobby most were her lower legs and feet. They appeared pale, purple, and swollen. We need to see a doctor. Tomorrow, Wynne said, her voice raspy. She stepped into the shower, and steam boiled up around her as she clutched her arms tightly across her breasts, shoulders rounded, bloody water swirling off her body and down the drain. Her lips had turned a deep shade of blue and a gray face by the time she stepped from the shower into the towel that Bobby wrapped around her. He dried her carefully, worried about the depth of the gash on her neck, although stumped as to why it wasn't bleeding. He helped her to bed. When, he began... Just let me rest. She closed her eyes and rolled away, drawing the covers up. Bobby returned to the bathroom and stripped, leaving his bloody clothes in a pile. He braced himself against the sink and stared into the mirror. His skin glowed like fresh strawberries compared to winds. He showered quickly and dried, feeling somewhat revived by the steamy bath. The vertigo had lightened, but he was convinced that they both should see a doctor. He glanced at the clock near the medicine cabinet. 
already 3 a.m. He remembered the producer, but the record company would simply have to wait. He and Wynn needed medical attention. Resolved, Bobby pulled on clean briefs and came out of the bathroom to find Wynn sitting against the headboard, covers clutched around her. Bobby settled on the bed and Wynn moved into his embrace. The covers cascaded to the mattress. His hand appeared blazingly pink against the pale violet color of her skin. Wherever he touched her, he left marks, as though he'd pressed the blood into other areas. My fingers, Wynn whispered, the words slurring. They're stiff. The cuts, they're not bleeding, and there's no pain. Bobby moved around for a better look and found Wynn's eyes half open, her face clenching. I saw us go off the road, Wynne said. Things went black and then floating. She closed her eyes and her head tilted slightly back. Something's wrong, Bobby. Something terrible. Bobby held her for several long moments and then eased her down onto the bed. He drew the blanket up around her and rose to dress, but Wynne caught his hand and he grimaced as pain shot through the cut on his arm. Look at me. Bobby met her pleading eyes and he saw the milky fog of death seeping in. I'll get you to a hospital, he promised. It's too late, Wynne murmured. She looked up, her face drawn and wan. Look at my body, the cuts, my skin, I'm... She struggled for the specific word, but what she tried to say would not come. What happened, she managed. What have you done? He again sat on the bed and hung his head for several long moments. His voice quavered as he tried to form an explanation. You weren't breathing. I couldn't find a pulse. Couldn't get you out. He avoided her eyes, but that didn't allow him to avoid the truth. What could, what should he tell her? That the Sharps and Flats woman's mountain magic had pulled Wynne's soul back, but had failed to restore life to her body? I shouldn't be here, Wynne whispered. Why did you... The words slurred unintelligibly and her arms drew awkwardly inward. Bobby. Bobby rose and dressed quickly. Wynne stretched her neck back and struggled to extend her arms. She gazed up through fogged eyes. Dead and alive. Bobby detected sad amusement in her voice. She rolled her head around, stretching the neck muscles, then lay still, staring at the ceiling. Deep sorrow and guilt consumed and threatened to suffocate Bobby for what he'd done to win. She looked around as though she'd read his thoughts and reached out slowly toward him, the effort showing in her face. Take me with you, she struggled to say. Bobby trembled with possibility. Taking her would better make his case to the old woman. How could the witch refuse him then? With his strength returning by degree, he lifted Wynne into his aching arms with a grunt and carried her to the car to lay her in the back seat, her body gradually contracting on itself. Winded, Bobby slid in behind the wheel and started the engine, his mind centered on the old Sharps and Flats woman. With a final shake, the engine went silent. Music wafted through the streets from the upscale bottle clubs. These places now afforded the band occasional work, but the jukes they replaced had provided steady gigs without the wannabe pretenders to whom these new clubs catered. What irritated Bobby were the ones who believed that mere conversation about music with a musician qualified them as artists. Wind moaned and Bobby twisted around in the seat. Her eyes had grown more glazed, the pupils milky and cold. Where are we? she managed. 
Lie still, Bobby said. I'll be right back. Bobby opened the door and crossed the sidewalk, raising a fist to bang on the Sharps and Flats door, but the knob turned and the ancient door rattled open on rusty hinges. The squat old woman stepped into the dark doorway, a soft whisper of music emanating from within the store. Help me, Bobby said breathlessly. The old woman's mouth puckered in consideration. She nodded toward the car. Now that it's too late, you believe what I told you? She sighed heavily. Make her right, Bobby pleaded. The old woman's eyes narrowed. I can't undo what I didn't do. Bobby's shoulders sank under the weight of desperation and understanding. Then tell me how I can. The old woman stepped down from the doorway and, with a gentle hand, turned him back toward his car. He felt a vague tingle where her fingers touched, a cold fire igniting the molecules. You called back only her soul. Bobby's thoughts reeled and he realized the song never mentioned the restoration of life to Wynn's body. I can do it now. I can sing. It's, it's too late, the woman said. Too much time's elapsed. Her body's dead. Her soul's trapped. Bobby trembled before the woman, his head shaking in denial of the obvious. I didn't know. We're all responsible for our own actions, son, the woman said. Make it right. And give it thought this time and the right words will come. Do what you have to for her. The old woman turned and with a soft grunt stepped back into the store and closed the door, giving it a good shove to lock it in place. The light inside winked out, leaving Bobby drenched in the amber glow of street lamps. The car lurched out of its parking space down the street and revved past a few seconds later, the driver leering out the window at him, all eyes and teeth gleaming in a wretched grin. As the car accelerated away, Bobby glanced skyward, wishing for an alternative he knew did not exist. The paleness of the eastern sky hinted the threat of a new day. Bobby? Wynne's voice cracked with the effort from the car. Bobby opened the back door and lay down in the seat with her, molding himself to her. Where are we? She struggled to ask. Shh, he hushed. With his eyes clouding, Bobby's caress tightened. He held her for several long moments, delaying what he knew he had to do, the coldness of her skin only emphasizing the inevitable. Finally, he drew a breath, struggling against the tightening in his throat, and began to sing, his voice fractured and trembling, the tune mournful and filled with regret. I could not take the sudden loss and called you home. Powers of God sent back your soul, failed to make you whole. Someday my time will come to an end, and our story told. Perhaps we'll all understand, and then join souls. When the body is only a hollow shell And the time here should be gone We can't trust dreams or wishing wells 
our love so must go on go on lie down lie down and rest your soul lie down lie down my love behold behold as he sang Wynne's milky eyes closed and she whispered something but he could not make it out he tried to convince himself that she'd whispered her love for him but she could have been damning him for all he knew as the words passed her lips, the sharps and flats interior ignited in a single, brilliant pulse of light, then went dark once again. Bobby's voice fell to silence and Wynne lay completely dead in his arms for the second time that night. As he held her with his face buried in her hair, several cars passed, their drivers leaving the bottle clubs that were closing despite the night's hopeless struggle to survive the coming dawn. Bobby drew a deep, steadying breath and slipped his arm out from under Wynne's body. He got out of the car and straightened slowly, his eyes still on Wynne, now a bizarre illusion of calm even as her muscles continued to tighten and contract. Abruptly, he circled around the car and pried open the passenger door. He came back around, lifted Wynne's body out, and returned to the passenger side to place her in the seat. He slammed the battered door closed twice before it locked. He got in behind the wheel, started the engine, and drove away slowly. As city lights vanished behind, Bobby settled back, arms aching, hands clutching the wheel as his foot pressed the accelerator down until it rested against the floor. Sign markers and trees flickered past in the headlight's margin. A sign warned of a sharp curve ahead. In Bobby's mind, a drink spilled and terrified eyes appeared in the road. He yanked the wheel and Woods rushed in. Bobby's chest rose, fell, rose, fell. With each forced breath, each beat of his heart, wretched dull pain bled into Bobby's consciousness. His arms, then his shoulders and head, chest, legs. He tried to swallow, but realized something was in his mouth and down his throat. Air rushed in, flowed out, and sadness saturated his mind with the realization that he was still alive. His eyes fluttered, and the lids pulled apart. At first he saw nothing but vague shapes in a mist of bright light. One of those shapes moved closer. Hey, buddy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Kyle, not sure if you're with us yet, but if you can understand you had a wreck, you're going to be okay. The anxious words broke off and his image shifted nervously. He glanced around as another voice sounded. He nodded, then turned back to Bobby. Someone's here to see you, bud so I'll talk to you later. The shuffling of feet blended with the medical equipment's rhythmic cacophony, and a new image entered Bobby's vague field of view. Round and dark, the image began to sharpen as it drew close, and the sharps and flats woman's face came into focus. She nodded appreciatively, her mouth neither smile nor frown. "'Wind's where she should be,' the old woman whispered. "'Come by the store when you're better,' she paused." Do you understand? Come by the store. Bobby blinked. Then came a sudden bustle of activity around him, and the old woman vanished as medical technicians probed and examined. Within moments they'd removed the tube from his throat and replaced it with a plastic cannula blowing cold oxygen into his nostrils, and he once again breathed on his own. The last nurse in the room raised the head of his bed to a thirty-degree angle and smiled. Glad you're back. Bobby closed his eyes. Insurance restrictions on hospitalization sent Bobby home as soon as he could lift himself from bed, even though his doctor argued that Bobby was in no condition to be discharged. Bobby wobbled out under his own power, refusing a wheelchair, instead using two canes for support. Kyle had come to drive him home, but Bobby told him he wanted to visit Wynn's grave, that he would go alone by taxi to the cemetery. You got a phone? Kyle asked him. Bobby shook his head no, remembering that it had been destroyed in the first crash. Kyle gave his phone to Bobby. Call me at home if you need anything. Twenty minutes later, Bobby stood beside the lane where the cab had dropped him, his gaze locating a mound of fresh earth about forty yards in, arms aching as they supported him on the canes. Finally, he started for the grave, each step a struggle. As he approached the settling mound of dirt, his strength began to ebb. 
He lowered himself to the ground beside the grave, laying the canes aside, his jeans soaking in the ground's dampness. All the memories of the last few months cascaded in at once, only to end up with him staring blankly at the simple headstone that bore Wynne's name. Bobby didn't know how long he'd been there when he finally used the canes to lift himself back to his feet, wincing as the effort tugged at the stitches in his arm. With Kyle's phone, he called a cab that arrived a few minutes after he emerged in the lane from the rows of graves. The taxi drove him to the Sharps and Flats music store where Bobby asked the driver to wait. He got out and hobbled up the three stairs with difficulty, arriving in the doorway to find the old woman waiting behind the side counter. He stood there for several long moments, saying nothing, simply returning her gaze. Finally, the old woman nodded. You're right. Bobby's eyes narrowed questioningly. It's unusual for men, but it happens. Bobby Hayes, you're special. People understand where I come from. They'd seek you out. And in time, she drew a deep breath, in time you'd accept, but for now, you have to be careful. Or what? I'll put someone's soul into a dead body? Music's got power if you know how to use it, the old woman said. You didn't with the first song, but you learned. I think you realize, even though Wynne's gone physically, she'll never be far from you as long as you have those songs. Bobby said nothing as the old woman bent low behind the counter and fussed with something. Faint music resonated through the room as though ghostly fingers had breached the barriers to pluck the strings of those special instruments lining the store's back wall. The old woman straightened and set a small case on the countertop. She popped the clasps and opened it to reveal the beautiful teardrop mandolin that Bobby had played the day he met Wynne. It wasn't ornately decorated or inlaid, but the impeccable craftsmanship was irrefutable. Wynne had been paying on this for you, the old woman said. She withdrew the instrument from its case, and he felt his arms threaten to collapse. He swayed on the canes. Sit down, she said. Bobby negotiated his way to the stool near the door, and lowered himself as she came around the corner, bringing the mandolin with her. He laid the canes aside and took the mandolin as gently as he would a newborn. The wood felt inexplicably different from the first time he'd played the instrument, something he couldn't quite describe, a sensation akin to touching flesh. His fingers began to coax from the mandolin the melody of the song he'd sung to send Wind's soul onward. His eyes closed and the image of Wynne rose in his mind. The air around him softened and her scent filled his nose. He stopped abruptly and the illusion vanished. The old woman smiled curiously as Bobby handed the instrument back to her. He struggled up, bracing with his canes as the woman placed the mandolin back into its case. They did not speak again as she followed him out and set the case beside him in the taxi seat. The old woman closed the door, took a step back and nodded approvingly as Bobby opened the mandolin case and took the instrument into his hands. The cab pulled slowly away. Bobby closed his eyes and played, once again summoning Wind's presence, consuming and eternal. Rise Rise up, rise up, my love, darling Give her back the stories 
That was C.S. Fuquay's Rise Up, as read to us by Jonathan Dans. Jonathan has read for us a few times before, and I think that I recall his reading of some of Tim Wagoner's work back in episode 113 Best of All. Jonathan Dans is a writer who lives on the edge of the New River Gorge, that is, in West Virginia, with his wife, daughter, and a menagerie of domestic pets. When not narrating, Jonathan can be found working on his first novel, riding his bike in the woods, or hanging out with his family. He even manages to hold down a steady job. If the mood strikes, visit him at his blog, Words and Coffee, at jonathandans.com. Of course, link will be in the show notes. Now we will hear from Sylvia Schultz for her most recent edition of Lights Out. Welcome to Lights Out, the podcast for paranormal stories. I'm your host, Sylvia Schultz. Certain places seem to attract paranormal activity. Schools and theaters are notorious for attracting spirits, probably because of their high levels of everyday energy. There is another group of buildings that tends to be quite active supernaturally. Prisons, asylums, and sanitariums are places where, in life, people are held without being allowed to leave. In death, these ties seem to intensify. Grab your visitor's pass, check in at the front desk, and let's go. Lights out. I had the chance to chat with Claire Cordes when we were both visiting my favorite asylum, the Peoria State Hospital. The subject of sanitariums came up, and Claire shared with me his experiences at a very famous institution, the notorious Waverly Hills. So, we were talking about Waverly. You're going to go to Waverly next weekend for the sixth time? For the sixth time. Yeah. Um, the first time I went there, it was uh, a public tour, and uh, everyone uh, made so much noise shuffling their feet and talking, and uh, posting pictures on Facebook and things like that. I thought to myself after that, uh, I've got to get this place to myself. <laughs> and so I've been doing that ever since. Cool. Yeah. 
Uh, so I like to go with a small team of people, maybe four or five. Uh, we'll walk the halls or split up. Um, uh, splitting up seems to get the most results there. I would imagine so. Yeah, but like I was saying, something unique happens every time I go there. Um, I will never tell anyone that I saw or heard a ghost. What I will tell them is that I encountered something that I have absolutely no explanation for. When uh, sitting in the hallway on the third floor, the third floor in particular is, okay. is active. Uh, I think the year before last, I was told the staff referred to it as the lion's den. They said never send anyone up there alone because oh it'll it'll get them. So to me, that's a challenge. That's just yeah. an invitation. <laughs> but um, a group of us were sitting in the hallway, and we saw from one uh, two of the rear rooms in the building. So there's no headlight contamination, flashlight, air, uh, airplanes, or anything like that. Um, this purple glow emanating from two of these rooms and it would it would get brighter and then it would start to diminish i tried to capture it on night shot but uh, night vision the infrared doesn't really get that particular spectrum i guess sure. but uh, we were all just stunned and amazed we got up and looked around and and tried everything we possibly could to figure it out um, there are other sounds that we've heard uh, the aroma of uh, soap powder flakes you know uh -huh. the old laundry soap flakes yeah um just coming out of nowhere at the same time we'd feel um something brushing on our legs uh waverly was the first time i've ever uh, encountered a, a a wave of full body chills one after another after another it was <laughs> it was uh w once i got over the original you know not shock but uh it's a little uncomfortable you know, disconcerting because you don't imagine. know what's happening. Yeah. Um, but uh, there was another time when I was walking on the third floor, just not really provoking, but just doing a little challenging. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I had gone down the length of the hall and was coming back, and I made a remark something like, uh, "Well, I guess there's nothing up here. It was all just a big hoax." And as I passed a doorway on my left. Uh, there were two people standing behind me. As I passed the doorway, it sounded like something shrieked in my ear. It sounded like, like let's see if I can imitate it. <laughs> and so I, I'm carrying the camera and I reacted. You see the reaction, but it didn't pick up on audio. Oh. But the people behind me heard it. And in fact, they waited until after we were done that night. They didn't want to freak me out, but they said they saw kind of a skeletal shadow emerged from the floor. They heard it and saw my reaction. It went around me and then went down the hall. Wow. So that was freaky. <laughs> uh, we've heard all sorts of sounds and, and things, just unexplainable things there. Man. So, I mean, we I've been to locations where it's just been dead quiet, and it's, you know, that can be expected too. Hmm. You know, it's not a, it's not a, a stage show. Right. <clears throat> you know. But uh, Waverly Hills is, is truly an incredible place. I even photographed, uh, I, I'm not really sure what it was. I call it a shadow figure. Mm -hmm. I'll try to find it on my phone for you. But um, mm -hmm. uh, very, very unusual shape. Okay. It appeared to be uh, in motion, actually. Wow. Um, so when I uh, go into these places, I like to straggle behind and let other people walk. 
Uh, so I was alone in the hallway. Um, it, as I was walking, it felt like someone was walking up behind me. Mm -hmm. And so my my feeling was, my reaction was to just kind of turn to the side and let whoever that was. I thought it was maybe a, one of the staff or whatever. Sure. There was nothing there. And so I held up my camera and I took about four or five shots in succession. All of them were, were normal except for one. And there was this black figure. You could definitely see the legs. You could see the left arm. But the head was missing. Oh, so, oh, I mean, I, I posted it to the Waverly Hills Facebook page. A lot of people, you know, rebuked it and contested it and said, oh, it's just contamination. Mm. I know what I saw, and I know that, that there was no one in the hallway but me. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to going back. Um, last yeah. year I was there. We were on the, the top floor. It was very still like this. Was No, no winds or anything like that. We had three rubber balls with mag lights behind them. Mm -hmm. And we were all just sitting there just asking questions. And we wanted to see if the balls would move, but we wanted to see if the flashlights would react too. Mm -hmm. I'm not completely big with the, uh, the flashlight sessions. Mm -hmm. I've seen them work, but then I, I've seen them fail. So at least with the lights behind the balls, we were able to see the balls move. And I recorded on, on my night shot camera, you see two of the balls just kind of moving a little. The first one took off, started rolling about five feet, stopped, and then changed directions and rolled a few feet the other way. And I'm getting goosebumps Brilliant. talking about it. But you could hear the collective oohs and ahs, you know, from the group. And, and it, it was really kind of stunning at first. It's hard not to get all excited and start screaming and yelling, but uh, there were five of us who saw that ball move, stop, and then move in another direction. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> so who knows Who knows what we're going to encounter this time. Right but on. every time it's different. Every single time it's different. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, sure, you're welcome. Jamie Davis is the author of a wonderful book called Haunted Asylums, Prisons, and Sanitariums, a wealth of material for anyone interested in these spooky, abandoned places. Jamie writes in a loose, relaxed style, sharing the experiences she's had in these buildings. I spoke with Jamie, hoping to get the storyteller to share a few tales with me. Jamie Davis is the author of Haunted Asylums, Prisons, and Sanatoriums. Um, Jamie, how did you get interested in this subject? I think the interest in the paranormal started when I was probably about four years old. Mm -hmm. uh, but as far as ghost hunting, I really didn't even know it was a real thing until Ghost Hunters aired. Uh -huh. And I definitely didn't know that it was something that the public could do as far as many of the locations that they feature. They don't tell you when they're airing the episodes, hey, Rolling Hills Asylum, you know, you can actually buy a ticket <laughs> and go on your own ghost hunt. Mm -hmm. So once I figured that out and had, had an experience up there, I, I was hooked. Well, tell us about that first experience. I went up there with 
my boyfriend at the time who wound up being my co-author, Sam Queen, and we experienced shadows just coming at us Mm. in the hallway, and we didn't talk about it at the time. We both just assumed that the dark was playing tricks Mm. with our eyes or that it was just fear. But after we left, and I can't remember if we made it all the way home from New York or if it was the hotel later that night, but we talked about it and just, you know, confirmed to each other that, yeah, we we think it was real and we really did Mm. have these experiences. Wow. So why haunted asylums? Why did you choose to write an entire book on on asylums and, and prisons and sanatoriums? was my well why did I do that (laughs) I think I think those were the venues probably that were widely available as being open to the public okay okay and accessible so it was sort of more of a ghost hunting guidebook in my mind really more than anything yeah I've read the book and it's really a lot of fun you 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 write like your audience is just right there in the room with you. It's just a really conversational, beautiful, laid-back kind of book to read, and it's really a lot of fun. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, what has been your favorite place to explore? And I know you haven't been to the Peoria State Hospital, so I'll forgive you for not saying that. I know. That has been on my list for a long time. Oh, oh, it's brilliant. You must let me be your native guide when you come. Absolutely, Bill. Okay, so besides Peoria State Hospital, what's been your favorite uh, place to explore? Probably the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Mm. Simply because of the size of it and how they've kept up the museum and the lobby and the tours that they do, and I just feel that it's just a comprehensive uh, attraction. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the idea of having a museum there. That's, um... I think it's important for people to learn about these places and about the people who were remanded to the places. Yeah, and they do a very good job over there as far as the medical history and treatment of the patients portraying it in a very respectful and realistic way and they even have an art museum for where they highlight the works that the former patients completed while ah. it's on. yeah it's it's a fascinating place oh that's wonderful we've talked about that at Peoria State Hospital but we don't we don't have any patient artwork we have yeah. photographs of their artwork, but we don't yet have any actual patient artwork, so I am, ah, uh, <laughs> that would be really wonderful to actually see. Yeah. yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. So, tell me stories about the places that you visited. Are, has there been any time that you've just been really terrified? Yeah, there was. Um, it didn't happen until about halfway through the project in Yorktown, Texas, the Mm. old Yorktown Hospital. And this was a facility that is not technically open to the public, but the owner is very receptive to people. If you 
contact him and, you know, have a website and seem like, you know, you're not a, a, a mad person, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess, a crazy, mm-hmm. he'll, you know, consider allowing access into the place. And, and he did a, a, a deeply discounted price oh, for us. Cool. We were able to go in, just the two of us, to this place. And if it had not been located on a main highway, you know, if it had been out in the middle of nowhere, I don't know that I would have lasted as long as I did, which (laughs) was only a couple of hours after dark, actually. Oh, my. I, um, we had gone through the whole entire building in the light of day so I could get my bearings and and all of that. Mm -hmm. And when it started to get dark we started kind of doing the rounds once again and um everything was you know okay for a little while but we got up to the third floor and we started having an interaction with something with uh flashlights where we think we're having conversations with you know somebody and they're using the flashlight to light up in response to questions sure yeah and it just felt wrong. Mm. It felt like uh, something was trying to get us engaged in an interaction, you know, because mm. it was a child or something. And um, that that just was the creepiest that I'd ever felt, mm. you know. And I shut it down, and we left. And when we left, I forgot to say my little speech that I always try to remember to to say, which is basically, you know, you can't come with us. You have to stay here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with a prayer of some sort, usually. And when we got back to Atlanta, I just had a terrible nightmare Mm -hmm. and and woke up in the middle of the night and thought something was just in my face. I was by myself at my house. All, All of my lights were on. I know I didn't go to bed with all my lights on. Oh. And, uh, yeah, it just really left me unsettled. Oh, yeah. That experience. Oh, man. That does sound creepy. Yeah. So, what do you... What sort of place do you most enjoy going to? Uh, a, an actual hospital or a mental asylum or a prison? Is there? Do you have a preference? I think probably the asylums just for the architecture ah. of them. That's, I was not expecting that answer. That is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they're the most most interesting to explore just because of the setup and how, how they look from the outside. Huh. And uh, have you ever been able to explore the cemeteries along with these asylums on the, on the asylum grounds? I haven't. Okay. I have not seen one historic cemetery from, from any of these places, unfortunately. Huh. Do the owners just not want you going in, or, or why haven't you been able to get in? Um, I'm not really, I'm not really sure what the scoop on that is. I don't think 
that it's it's really encouraged for any of these. I mean, the Trans Allegheny, the tour that I went on uh, during the daytime, I went on the Civil War tour, Ooh. and the cemeteries aren't even mentioned. And <laughs> candidly, I I forgot to even ask. Huh. But I don't think it's something that they really promote. So tell us more about the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Uh, you mentioned a Civil War tour. Tell us about that. Yeah, it, the docent takes you through the oldest part of the building. And <laughs> that's just very interesting because they, they do have some old artifacts throughout that wing, and they're dressed in full period clothes. And um, I don't know, there's just a lot of activity, and you can feel that the building still feels heavy mm. I guess is how to explain it so were there patients there during the Civil War or was it used as a uh, like a field hospital or something or or who, no, who was, what was, was the patient hospital there okay. that time okay and I was just trying to get a handle on on what the asylum population was during the Civil War yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, do you have any other interesting stories that you want to share with us to get people interested in reading the book? <laughs> yeah. In, in Trans Allegheny, we just picked a random isolation cell to go into oh. and started talking, trying to get something to happen, and got some flashlight video and seemed like we had made contact with one of the Civil War soldiers uh-huh. in the area. And during the middle of the session, a rock got thrown at me. Oh, man. Out of, out of nowhere. And that's the only time that anything like that has ever happened to me. And but it wasn't um, it wasn't scary. I think he just was trying to communicate with us. Hmm. Huh. But it couldn't have fallen from the ceiling. Um, and the whole area, I mean, it just was a small isolation cell, so it wasn't somebody down the hall throwing something. Mm. So that was pretty interesting. Yeah, sounds like it. Sam got himself cussed out by a ghost oh, in really? Mansfield. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about that. It's just funny in in the prisons. It, it seems like they were uh, more receptive to talking talking with me rather than Sam. Huh? Yeah, and it sounds like he got an EVP response, basically that told him to go f himself. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Now, did you ever get? It? Did you have? pleasant conversation well as, as pleasant as you can have with the the ghost of a prisoner did, did you experience anything nasty like that or, or do you think that they were more respectful of you because you were a female I've never uh, experienced anything nasty at all it just was it just was wow. Sam <laughs> oh that's good I mean it I'm, is surprising yeah that is surprising to me because I I've always believed that, you know, if somebody was nice in 
during their lifetime, they'll be pleasant when they're a spirit. And if they're they were a jerk or violent during their li- lifetime, there's a good chance that they're going to be a violent or a jerk on the other side. So that really, I, I'm I'm glad that they were that that you didn't run into anything nasty. Yeah, I didn't I didn't feel any kind of menacing uh, presence in any of the three prisons that we went to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Sam did get some, you know, EVPs cussing at him, both at Mansfield and I think West Virginia Penn. Wow. Probably the coolest thing that we saw mm-hmm. was an uh, I saw an actual shadow person at the very end during the whole time of writing this book. I never actually saw anything until we got to the Missouri Pen. Mm-hmm. And on death row, I saw just a big barrel-chested shadow person walk from one end of the hallway and stand right next to Sam. Oh. And I was inside the cell, and it was, you know, dark. Yeah. <laughs> so I can see Sam outside looking at me, and then just this figure just walks right up next to Sam and kind of pokes his head in like he's trying to see what we're up to. Oh, my. Yeah. That sounds creepy. (laughs) It probably would have been if I would have had long enough to register what was going on. (laughs) (laughs) It was like as soon as I realized what I was seeing, I just instinctively raised my flashlight up, I guess being an amateur and of course, I mean, it just, he was gone. Mm. But that was the coolest thing I saw, probably. Mm. Wow. That is amazing. <laughs> so, what are you working on these days? I am working on my second project with Llewellyn, and the working title is Haunted Hotels. Mm-hmm. And I have gone to the Myrtles in Louisiana, Ooh. 1886 Crescent in uh, Eureka Springs, Arkansas, mm-hmm. Jerome Grand out in Jerome, Arizona, and the Copper Queen in Bisbee so far. Cool. And and actually still trying to scout and find some locations. All righty. Very cool. Do be sure to check out Haunted Asylums, Prisons, and Sanitariums by Jamie Davis, and look for her upcoming book on haunted hotels. Speaking of upcoming books, I'll be doing a show soon to promote my newest, Hunting Demons, published by Whitechapel Press. This book actually has two parts to it. The first part is a look at demons and the demonic throughout history, and in science, music, and advertising. The second part, well, the second part gets personal. A fellow ghost hunter came to me with a tale of demonic oppression. She had run afoul of three evil entities during her ghost hunting, and they attached themselves to her firmly. Her story is told in Hunting Demons. So stay tuned for Linda's story in a future episode of Lights Out. And join us next time when we take a tour of the Tinker Swiss Cottage in Rockford, Illinois. Until then, pull the covers up over your heads, because we're going Lights Out.
That was Sylvia Schultz with Lights Out. Her link will be in the show notes. And that will be our evening, Children of the Night. Come, join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.